is Tan Talk, entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Sicily is a world apart, a place like no other. Attenzione, attenzione! Caro umane, ci sono le curse in automobili! Vita attaccata in casa! Cani, picciriti, porci e gaddine! Muore, muore a conto suo, sindaco se ne scotola! circuit race of its kind, the most grueling test of man and machine. It was fast and dangerous and beautiful all in one go. It stirred emotions like never before. Tutta la mia vita era colma di una passione. Muovendomi dal passato per vedere nel futuro. The most influential event in Sicily and the motor racing world. What the Targa Florio offered you was more corners, more gear changes, more braking and a very high top speed at the end of it on the four mile straight back to the pits. And so manufacturers could come here and they could test all of their latest developments here. So special gearboxes, special brakes, everything got a fantastic workout during the motorist. What a big success and the people, ah, people, bravo Vincenzo Florio, my name, my land. My idea. Vincenzo was feverishly collecting cars and needed an expert to drive them and to look after them. When Fiat sent their top mechanic, Felice Nazzaro, to Sicily with one of their machines, Vincenzo knew that he had found his man. Vuoi rimanere qui? 
Potresti fare il mio meccanico, il mio autista. Sì. Sì. In the second year, Nazzaro won the race for Vincenzo and by 1913 was building cars himself with immediate success. What do you think, Francesco? Pretty bloody marvelous, eh? What a great old car. We journeyed on in an Azzaro just like the Targa winner of 1913. All these machines were so exotic and alien, the Sicilians were captivated by what they saw. dangerous and beautiful, all in one go. This is La Targa Flor. And now... Hey, Rocky! Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat! Again? Nothing up my sleeve! Presto! <laughs> no doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. This is Art Morrison from Art Morrison Enterprises, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cards. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cards, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Tan, talk1340.com, and you can see us live here at the studios. In downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you want to see our past 615, this is going on 616 shows, go to NostalgicRadioAndCars.com. Good evening, Bobby. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? Am I coming out loud and clear? Because yep. I was trying to you know, adjust the fine. mic here a little bit. There we go. Okay. I kind of like having this coffee cup here because it kind of puts it right where... A good level. I don't have to touch it. I just have to talk into it. That's that's the goal. That's the goal, yeah. I I had a little experience of that over the last 12 some odd years. God, 12 years. Over 12 years. Anyway, hey, we got an exciting show for you tonight. we got two guests coming on. Of course, this weekend, starting tomorrow in Orlando, is the July, the summer edition of Meekum's Collector Car Auction. they got some pretty interesting cars on there. So uh, in a few minutes, we're going to have John Kramen on. He's the voice of Meekum. And uh, so he'll tell us about some of the highlights. You know, you're gonna, I was talking to somebody today, and you're seeing a lot of collections come up. And usually the collections are because somebody's got, you know, they kind of either they've just decided to move on to the big collector car world in the sky, or they've just kind of like come to the realization that they kind of need to thin the herd and there's nobody really there that wants to be a caretaker. and t- um, So you're going to see more and more of these collections. Of course, on the other hand, you're going to see a lot of barn finds because you're going to see a lot of guys that have, like myself, getting up in age, and then you know a few more years are going to go, you know what, I'm not so sure I can wrench on this anymore. I had a guy call me today out of Palatka, Florida, and uh, he's got a 64 Galaxy. He's had a number of cars. Uh, he was pretty much in the early 60s Ford, 60, 61, 62, 63, and 64. He said, this is my last one. I'm 76 years old. And um, he was calling me for parts because I, I still deal in classic and antique cars and parts, obviously. And then I do appraisals. But I had some few little 64 Galaxy um, goodies laying around. And uh, so he inquired me whether I had them or not. And uh, so we're going to touch base and see if we can uh, help this guy out and help him finish his car. Hey, I'm delighted to welcome my special guest to this show this evening. 
Um, and this gentleman's been on our show many, many times. We've become friends over the years. And uh, he is also widely known as the voice of Meekin. I'm delighted to welcome to the show. John Craman. John, how are you this evening? Hey, good, man. Everything's good. We're getting revved up for Orlando, brother. You know, I when you, you're doing you do that a knockdown drag out show <laughs> in January. Three thousand plus cars. Yep. And it's hard to believe that there's that many cars out there, but there is because there's three hundred million people in this country, and I would say a uh, big percentage of those guys are car guys. And now we have this you know, you, we're we're kinda like uh, fortunate to have you guys come back in the summertime and we got fifteen hundred cars coming through this time. So and some pretty amazing stuff. There's three in particular that caught my attention. One's a sixty six Shelby GT three fifty, lot S one one zero. Another one I think I know whose car this is, one of my customers. 1959 Impala convertible, S131, and a 1960 Essel two-door uh, F90 and a 78 Bronco F102. Now, these are three car, four cars that kind of caught my attention, but I want you to tell us about some of the really, really cool stuff that's coming through as well. Well, I think one of the stars of the show is really the IT car, the performance car from the 1980s, the poster child, literally, especially when you're talking American performance cars, the one-year-only 1987 Buick Grand National GNX. Uh, we've got one with under 60, you heard me right, under 60 original miles. Uh, it is essentially as new condition, or I'm expecting somewhere in the $200,000 range for that car. You know, the GNX back in the day, and I remember when that car came out, supposedly it was you know, limited production. The FBI got a bunch of those cars, and it was the fastest production car made in 1987, the GNX now. We're talking about the Grand National GNX, right? Right. Yeah, talk about the GNX. You know, the Grand National itself, great performer, but the GNX takes that to a completely different level. Uh, The folks at ASC and McLaren took a, literally a $15,000 Grand National, that's what they stickered for new, uh-huh. Ended up with doubling the price. Uh, 1987 GNX was about a $30,000 window sticker car. Only 547 of those were produced. A lot of changes to the car. Fender flares, wheels, suspension, of course, the engine. Uh, had a lot of tweaks to that turbocharged 3.8 liter V6. Rated at 276 horsepower. Doesn't sound like much, but uh, the performance of this car uh, greatly exceeded what that kind of modest horsepower rating is. As I said earlier, if you're talking American cars from the 1980s, this car really is at the top of the collector heap. And the fact that this car was under 60 original miles, the downside is is nobody will ever be able to enjoy that performance because this car will go from one collector to another as an example, as an investment-grade car that will strictly be available for show and never to drive to cruise nights and have out on the street. Not going to happen. Now, I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, because I had this discussion with Jay Leno here uh, six months ago when he was on our show. What are your thoughts on that? On a car, you just hit it on the nail. It will never be driven. It'll go from collector to collector, maybe museum to museum, and it'll just become a piece of road art, so to speak. So it kind of takes the fun out of it, don't you think? Well, it does, but there's a whole culture of car collector out there that really enjoys acquiring cars of this caliber, the absolute examples that are the finest of the fine. And I guess over, you know, over the long haul, in a way it's good that brand new examples of these important, significant landmark cars are going to be preserved for a future 
future generations. But frankly, my little modest car collection, my cars are all drivers. Mm-hmm. And the satisfaction that I get out of acquiring, um, maintaining, and literally driving, even if it's only 500 to 1,000 miles a year, which is pretty typical, that, to me, that all adds to the enjoyment. But there's deep-pocketed folks out there that want the best of the best. And as the old adage goes, they're only original one. So uh, there are plenty of examples out there of GNXs that have some miles on them that can be driven. And I wouldn't be surprised that a collector of this, the buyer of this car, uh, if he's really into the GNX mystique, he probably will have one he can drive as well as one he can have in his collection and, you know, show at the high-end shows. I guess it's okay, I guess, is, is what, what I'm saying. Not my cup of tea, but, hey, you know, what are you going to do? You know, it's interesting that you said that because I've actually run into collectors that that's exactly what they do. They got a, let's just say it's a Porsche or a Ferrari or a muscle car, some kind of Shelby. They got a flawless piece, which they just basically sit there have a glass of wine and stare at. And then they've got one that they basically put racing fuel in and they go out and terrorize the neighborhoods with. Yeah, you know, and it really, it kind of, you need almost to have kind of a happy balance. These these old cars like this, this 87 GNX, with under, as I say, under 60 miles, uh, that's one thing. A car like that is, I mean, this car is not going to be driven. We know that. We just have to get, you know, we, we just have to understand that. But that represents a small percentage of the overall car collector strategy. Most people, whether they're original cars or restored cars, they drive them a little bit, they enjoy them, they share them with other people at shows, but yet at the same time, they're not going out and driving them in the rain. They're not you know, using them as a daily driver. They're preserving them, but they are operating the cars. And, and to me, honestly, that really represents, I think, the bulk, maybe 80 90% of the typical car collector out there as opposed to just those guys that like to buy them, look at them, let them sit, and then sell them every once in a while and keep their inventory churning. So tell us about some of the other cars that uh, are going to be highlighted. Now, in in the summertime, you've got, I think if I looked at the roster, it's something like 1,500 cars. Are there collections in this, or is this pretty much all individual cars in in this particular auction here this summer? No, there's a handful of really good collections as well, uh, as well as individual consignments. And one of the collections that I think is one of the most fascinating ones is a motorcycle collection with about 15 motorcycles. Uh, and all those are going to be selling at no reserve, by the way. And the reason that I mention that, Robert, is just to really let your listeners know that a Mecham auction is not all about Corvettes and muscle cars and resto mods and hot rods and 50s chrome and fin era cars really are capturing the spirit of the entire vehicle collecting world. And that would include late model exotics, vintage exotics, motorcycles, uh, as well as, you know, what you might consider to be traditional Mecham inventory. This has been our strategy for about the past 10 years. And it's one of the reasons why we've grown to be the world's largest collector vehicle auction company is because we really literally welcome all groups, all collections, vehicles, collector vehicles of all types. We do not discriminate. Which other cars in that group uh, kind of strike your fancy? I always have to ask you that. Is there anything in particular? I mean, and then how often do you get, do you actually sit there? I mean, this has got to be a, temp, a terrible temptation. You're sitting up there on the block, you're narrating, and you see this gorgeous stuff come by, and you go, "Damn, I'd really like to have that." But happens 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 all the time and i learned you know now that we're in our 15th year of television coverage uh and i've been i've been with beacon myself personally since 2006 
uh, that temptation has reared its head many, many, many times. Uh, and the last time it paid off and I succumbed to it was actually Kissimmee, Florida, 2016, where I bought my wife a 1972 Corvette. We'd been looking for a couple of years for really great examples of Bloomington Gold Car with 30,000 miles. It's all original. It's an absolute cream puff. So I guess to answer that directly before I tell you about a couple other cars that I like, you really have to have a lot of self-control and understand that you have to keep your your purchasing, or at least my purchasing, down to cars that are really important to me because you can't have them all. And once I have them, I tend to covet them and keep them for a long time, if not forever. So right now there's no holes in the garage, six-car garage. It's completely huh. full. And so there's no room for anything else, which in a way is good. But that having said, there are a couple of cars that really got me cranked up, and I have to say, maybe the one that stands out more than anything else is a 1965 Ford Mustang. We think, well, that's cool, but there's a lot of Mustangs. This is the holy grail of, of non-Shelby 1965 Mustangs. It's a convertible, very, uh, you know, <laughs> desirable, important car there, red with a red interior. It's a four-speed, but most of all, it's a factory K-code. That means that 271 horsepower, 289 top of the performance peak in the early years of the Ford Mustang. This could very well be a $100,000 little Mustang convertible, uh, primarily due to the colors, the condition, and that legendary K-Code engine option. And uh, is there, now I know you're more of a Corvette guy, is there potentially a a K-Code Mustang in your future? Well, I own a Mustang, a 2014 Mustang GT I bought new with a Coyote, Oh, okay. With the, yeah, with the, with the six-speed. So, yeah, I like Corvettes. So I kind of like I, I like a variety of vehicles, but uh, I have a Pontiac GTO from 64. I've owned that car since 1976 when I was 19. Oh, wow. I've got three, I've got three Corvettes, uh, and I've got the Mustang and some motorcycles and a daily driver. So, well, two, if you count my wife's car. So, um, like I say, you know, the garage is full, and that's helpful when I've got temptation. But, you know, I've been, Robert, I've been lucky over the years to really think about and identify what are the specific cars that are really important to me. And over the years, I've, I've acquired those and kind of checked those boxes off. But there's something about that little K-Code Mustang. You know, you mentioned Corvettes. There's a couple of what I would call, I guess, they bookends. There's a 1990 ZR1 Corvette. That was the first year of the Generation 4 car, mm-hmm. that exotic 375-horsepower engine. Uh, it wasn't the first ZR1, but it was the first in this Generation 4 lineup that ran all the way through 1995. And if you fast forward to the modern era, to 2019, the C7, one year only, the final year of the C7, we've got a ZR1, the most powerful, quickest, fastest Corvette in the history of Corvettes, even to this day, even with the C8, at a whopping 755 horsepower. Those are the Corvette bookends I'm going to be paying some attention to. Um, you know, we talked about this. Now, how many auctions is Meekum doing a year? I think it, last time we talked, or that we actually covered this subject, it, it was like 15 auctions a year. How many are you up to now? That's exactly right. We've got 15. We've already got four auctions in the book so far. We've got 11 more to go, including uh, Orlando will be uh, in this order. will be in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Monterey, California, Dallas, Texas. We've got a collection auction uh, up in Fountain City, Wisconsin at the Elmer's Auto and Toy Museum. So many items there, that'll be four full days. We've got Chicago Schaumburg in October and Chattanooga, Tennessee, Robert. 
on the same weekend. You heard me right. Two collector car auctions on the same weekend. First time in Mecham history, we're splitting our crew right now in the middle. We're doing both auctions. One will be televised. That will be the Chicago auction, our Chattanooga auction, uh, which is in conjunction with the Chattanooga Motor Car Festival, by the way. That will be uh, non-televised, but will be available at Mecham.com for streaming. We'll be Las Vegas in November, and our tradition is to finish out the year in Kansas City in December. And then we rev up again, and we go to Kissimmee in January, and we start the 2023 schedule all over again. It is a huge, huge undertaking to uh, execute, plan and execute these auctions. And, uh, you know, this this Mecham team, you got to give them a bunch of credit for the ability to, you know, travel around the country putting these major events on and, Watching it on TV makes it all look like it's seamless. I can tell you, it's a lot of folks uh, behind the scenes making all that happen. About 300 people it takes to run one of our auctions. Whoa, that's a, that's a sizable staff. All right, so this weekend, so we start basically tomorrow through Saturday. And if people right. want to find out more about it, get tickets, show up, give us the rundown. Yeah, com will give you all the information uh, that you can imagine and then some. Gates open uh, every day out there at the Orange County Convention Center. That is the big convention center, downtown Orlando. We'll open at 8 o'clock every day. The auction will start about 9 o'clock. It'll go probably till oh, maybe mid-evening, 6, 7 o'clock. It, it, it ends when the last car crosses the block. Uh, tickets at the door, 30 bucks in advance, or uh, 30 bucks at the door, and kids 12 and under free. And television coverage on Motor Trend TV and Motor Trend Plus, the streaming service. We'll be on both cable and streaming. We'll kick off on Friday, this Friday, at 12 noon, where we're putting together a total of 12 hours live. But we encourage your folks that are listening and within striking distance of Orlando to head on over and see it in person. Nothing like being there and seeing all the cars and the action and the dynamics that occur when the world's best collector cars cross the block basically one every 90 seconds. Wow. Well, John, thank you for showing up again and hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I will see you this weekend, for sure, Friday, Saturday, sometime, and uh, wish you guys all the best of luck, and uh, take care. Say hi to everybody over there. All right. You got it, my friend. See you this weekend. We will. Thank you. I want to thank my good friend, John Craman, the voice of Meekham, for hanging out with us telling us about the auction this weekend. So, hey, guys, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Bob's going to fire up the stereo. We're going to play a little Badfinger. We had Joey Mullen on last week. And uh, he's, uh, he was one of the lead guitarists for uh, Badfinger. This is a song that he wrote. It's called Suitcase. It's just got a groovy beat to it. It's really far out. So, hey, you're tuning into Nostalgia Getting Cars. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Too fast Miles of miles 
Racing's important to men who do it well. When you're racing, it, it's life. Anything that happens before or after, just waiting. Hey, I'm Christy Lee from All Girls Garage and Barrett-Jackson on Velocity, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert, and we're going to be on the air in a few minutes with our next special guest. And uh, so we're looking forward to that. Now, Meekum is... Now, if you go in January, January is at the... Heritage Park, which is out there basically east of Kissimmee. This is going to be downtown at the uh, Orlando Convention Center, I believe off High Drive. So um, should be exciting. I, I was didn't make it there last year, but I'm going to definitely make it there this year because you know how it is in this business. Every once in a while you get some schedule conflict. But anyway, it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman is an author, a photographer. He's got a couple books to his credit. Uh, Sebring and uh, the Road Atlanta a book on Road Atlanta, and a book on Daytona. And I'm going to have him on here, and he's going to tell us about those. And he's also got a Facebook page, which I didn't realize he was associated with, but it's a very, very good one. It's called The Glory Days of Race. I'm delighted to welcome, here's a familiar name, Harry Hurst. Harry, how are you? I'm good, Robert. How are you? Now, do you often get confused with, you know, Hurst and Harry Hurst and all those guys, you know, back in the day? Well, I, I, I frequently was asked, in earlier days, you know, are you related right. uh, to her shifters? I, I will say that that is becoming less and less common uh, <laughs> as, as we get older and uh, remembering her shifters becomes a thing of the past. But I'll tell you a funny story. I was at Road Atlanta for the Can-Am, and it was the first time I uh, actually had ever seen Linda Vaughn. And I was you know, <laughs> 19 years old, you know, just, you know, you know, snotty little kid kind of thing. And I thought, and I and I never, ever went up and talked to drivers or people like that. I just never had, you know, the, the gumption to do that. But for some reason, I walk up to Linda Vaughn and I say, hi, I'm Harry Hurst. I think we may be related. And she looks at me with a <laughs> direct stare and she says, I don't think so. <laughs> so that that was my uh, af- after that <laughs> I never I never tried using uh, you know the Hearst name as a as a connection but uh, uh, all right so now you are you're basically uh, are you originally from the Tampa Bay area yeah yeah grew up in uh, in the Hyde Park area of Tampa and uh, you know went to went to school there went up to Florida State uh, graduated in seventy two and. Uh, had an English sports car repair shop in Tallahassee for a number of years, and then uh, moved up to Philadelphia uh, in the late seventies, and that's where we've been ever since. So you're a car guy. Yeah, from from early days of uh, you know the early sixties, you know, slot car racer over at Chan's Hobby Shop. For any of those Tampa people that are listening that remember Chan's uh, on Henderson. And, uh, uh, and then, uh, uh, my, I, I was very fortunate to have parents that were tolerant of my uh, addiction to uh, racing as a, as a teenager. 
And uh, they actually, my dad, who was an accountant uh, at the time, uh, took time off in the height of tax season to drive us over to Sebring in 1965. Now, this is a time when accountants work 24 hours a day, but he took Saturday afternoon off. We got there right after the rain uh, stopped. That was the year of the Great Deluge. And uh, that was the first time I got to see in person Chaparral's, uh, Cobra Daytona Coupes, Ford GTs, all these cars I had only read about in the magazines, and that just cemented it. And uh, I got interested in photography, uh, went to the races, took pictures, and uh, just by luck, uh, through a friend of mine by the name of John Annis, who still lives in, uh, in Tampa, uh, I was introduced to the press secretary at Sebring, and he asked me if I'd like to take pictures for him, and I said, sure. <laughs> so at the age of 19, I became track photographer for the Sebring 12-hour race, and, uh, you know, it was, you know, i I got to tell you, even then, we pinched ourselves because we knew that those were very, very special days. Uh, you know, with the uh, Porsche 917s, the Ferrari 512, you know, all of that. Mark Donahue, Mario, Dan Gurney. You know, I mean, we knew these were unique times. And uh, so we uh, we made the best of it. And uh, I later, you mentioned, uh, you know, I later... Uh, did a book on the 1970 Sebring uh, using my photos uh, and uh, telling the story of that very unusual race. Uh, as you uh, as you know, Steve McQueen driving with a broken left ankle almost won the race. It took Mario Andretti jumping into the second place Ferrari and chasing down uh, uh, McQueen's co-driver Peter Revson, who really was the reason they were in a position to win. Uh, but he uh, chased down uh, Peter Revson and won by 23 seconds after racing for 12 hours. Now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. i got to ask you this. Now, I, yeah. you are the first person. So you were actually there in 1970. So that's basically what happened. So Mario blew up his Ferrari. So they stuck him in the other car. And he was, there were what, three or four laps down. Yeah. And he literally caught Peter Revson in the Ferrari. Was the Ferrari that much faster? And it was only, what, like you said, a few seconds that he actually passed him. What was it, back in turn 17 at Carousel or before that on the back straight and well, won the race? Yeah, let, well, let, let me tell you, because even that part is, is pretty interesting. Okay. Uh, you, you have to realize that uh, Peter Revson and Steve McQueen were driving a Porsche 908. So that's a little three-liter car. Two old, so, two-year-old car, race car, by yeah, the way, right? Exactly, exactly. And so under normal circumstances, it never would have been in a position to win. But Sebring is a car killer. And yes. all of the Gulf Porsches retired. The uh, Salzburg Porsches retired. Uh, and and the leading 512 retired, as you said. Uh, you know Mario's car, which had led up until 9 p.m., uh, you know had a, a transmission problem and, and fell out. So, and uh, a, a 512 coupe was sitting there in third pl- in uh, second place. And uh, Mario Forgari, the uh, Ferrari team manager, comes up to Mario. Mario was getting ready to go over to his airplane, which was over on the north-south runway and fly back to Nazareth because he had a, a race the next day. Sebring is run on a Saturday. He had a, he had a dirt track race at uh, Langhorn, at uh, Nazareth on uh, Sunday. So he was, he was getting ready to leave. 
And uh, for Gary, he comes over and says, hey, look, you know, jump. I, I want you to get in the second place car and see what you can do. And Mario, I interviewed Mario for my book. And, uh, and he said, I drove like a man possessed and chased down uh, Peter Revson. Peter, had, Peter was really tired. He, he did the majority of the driving. Mm-hmm. Steve McQueen did a good portion of it. Now, many people say he hardly drove at all. That's not true. He drove uh, over five hours of the 12. Uh, but they kept um, uh, Revson in the uh, 908 at the end, hoping that they could hold off Andretti, but he just couldn't. Uh, the 512 uh, 5-liter car was, was faster than the 3-liter uh, Porsche. And uh, so Andretti chases him down, passes him. At that point, the fuel reserve light comes on in Mario's car, and he had been going so fast and driving it so hard that he was not getting good fuel economy. So he pulls into the pits, and they have to get out of the car in those days to refuel. So for Gary pulls him by the epaulets, drags him out of the car. They put enough gas in the car to finish the race. They throw him back in, and he zooms out of the pits just at the same time that Revson comes by on the straightaway. And again, Within a, a lap or two, Andretti was able to uh, to pass him. I'm not sure where he passed him. Probably on the uh, north-south runway on the back side, but uh, uh, he passed him and uh, and won by 23 seconds. That was the closest uh, endurance race victory. Uh, well, uh, at, at Sebring, uh, it, it, up until that time. Now today, of course, I was just at Sebring this last year uh, photographing uh, the race. And uh, those guys go flat out the entire race. And I think the, the, the race was decided, what was it, four and a half seconds or something like that. You know, it's crazy, crazy what they do today. I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's really a whole different level than, than the way it used to be uh, when, you know, you, you wanted to nurse your car because most of the race cars wouldn't last for, uh, for 12 hours of flat out racing. So it was. It's a it's a whole different ball game today. Well, like you said, you know, part of it's a runway. It was particularly when you get around turn uh, 12, 11 and yeah. twelve. There, the carousel, yeah. that the transitions in the track, and I've autocrossed there before in, in yeah. club race. It beats the crap out of you because it just it didn't just. And then coming around turn one, you know, there's always. I forget who said it. There's the monster turn one. That part of the track too is pretty nasty. It'll beat the crap out of you back there too. So it it takes its toll on the cars. Well, yeah, and, and, and the drivers, as you mentioned, I, I did the Skip Barber school there a number of years ago, and it was the first time I'd ever actually driven on the course, and we're in those little formula cars they had there. And uh, I come around there, you know, turn 12, which for your listeners, it's a 180-degree turn, and, yes. and Sebring is built on an old World War II training base. So the concrete there is you know, 50, 60 years old, you know, if not more now. And, and it's, it, the concrete is flat, but it's the expansion joint right. where the concrete comes together. The transitions. And so you go over that stuff in that turn, and I couldn't believe it. My eyeballs were vibrating. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't see any landmarks because it was, it was just knocking around. But luckily there was an orange pylon at the entrance to the pit. And so the pits were to the right and the track was to the left. And all you could do is look at that orange blur and kind of stay to the left of it. And you knew you were going to be on the track. But I mean, other than that, you know, you couldn't see anything. And you think, well, these guys are doing this for 12 hours 
in in a hundred degree weather, you know, because you know, even in March, Florida can be a bear, mm. and uh, I I cannot imagine what they did. I I also did a book uh, on the sixty five Sebring, and uh, in there, one of the drivers uh, talks about driving one of the Cobra Daytona coupes, and he literally uh, had heat prostration while he was in the car because it's a closed coupe, and he he. Barely managed to get into the pits. Once he got into the pits, he couldn't get out of the uh, out of the car. They had to actually open the door and drag him out because he had he had passed out from from heat exhaustion. And, I mean, that's what those guys they had they didn't have cool suits, you know, like like the the drivers have today. Uh, you know, it was. It was brutal, brutal. Stephen was a killer of a racetrack. All right, so 1965, that was the rain that yeah. came supposedly late in the afternoon, and that's, I mean, there's pictures of, you know, the spare tires, you know, when they're yeah. changing tires, floating away in the pit area. So you were there the whole time. What was it like? When well, did the rain happen? Late in the afternoon? Late, late in the afternoon. I actually, that was the year my, my parents drove us down. Right. That, I actually got there uh, right after the rain, but I, I did the book on it with Dave Friedman's photographs. Okay. You, you may know Dave. Right. One of the great... Cobra guy. Shelby, and, photographer, uh, photographer, right. And uh, uh, so it started, you know, around, you know, four or so. And, of course, you know, the Chaparral was well in the lead by then. And the rain came, and they said that, uh, you know, they were floating. You know, the cars out on the track couldn't even, you know, the fast cars couldn't go that fast. But the little Porsches and the Sprites, you know, because they at, at Sebring at that time, you had a wide variety of automobiles that raced. Mm-hmm. Everything from Ferraris down to, you know, little MG Midgets on the track at the same time. Well, the MG midgets love the rain because their little narrow tires went right through. Mm-hmm. They said, you know, they were passing four GTs and stuff like that left and right. But uh, it, it eventually stopped around sunset and uh, and the water drained away. Uh, and, and then, you know, they were able to finish the race. Uh, but uh, it, it came, uh, the Chaparral came very close to getting flooded out. In fact, they first... They brought the car in and just parked it in the pits for about half an hour uh, because they were afraid that uh, you know they were they were just going to flood the engine and not be able to even finish the race. So when you and were you there also in '69 too? Where did you start doing yeah. the photography? Was that '69? '69. Okay, so '69 was also a pretty exciting race. And uh, and I think the Ford GT won that year, didn't it? That was and and not only any Ford GT that. That, there, there are a handful of race cars that are as famous as the drivers. And that car that won Sebring in 1969 was chassis number 1075. That car won Le Mans in 1969 and, or 68 and then repeated it in 69. It also won, I believe, five other endurance races. Uh, so it, it is by far the winningest uh, uh, Ford GT40 of, of all time, and uh, a very, very famous car. Now, Jackie X was driving it, and I forget yep. who the co-driver was. It might have been Jackie Pedro Rodriguez. That was... Jackie Oliver. Jackie, okay, and that was at Le Mans. Were they driving at Sebring and Daytona as well, yep. that car? Yep, yep. Okay, and then 68. Now, it seems to yep. me that, what, either Brian Redman or David Hobbs, one of the guys was in one of the Ford GTs, was it, they weren't in that car, was it? Well, uh, at... 
at Le Mans, that was the year Pedro Rodriguez uh, won. Um, okay. Uh, in the uh, in ten seventy five, uh, and uh, you know held off Hans Hermann in one of the I, th- I think it was sixty eight. Eh, I may I may be I may be wrong. I think you're right, Nick, because that was a nine oh eight Porsche that they were that they held off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was the car that Steve McQueen drove in 70, wasn't it? Ah, uh, boy, you know, I'm going to have to look at that. <laughs> I, you know, I used to, because, and, and I want to reflect also on your Glory Days of Racing Facebook page, because actually it's fairly fairly educational, because when I see pictures in there, i got to Google them real quick, and then i got to go, okay, because... You know, to me, and then I also want to get into Can-Am and Road Atlanta, because yeah. to me, Can-Am racing was the epitome of racing. Although I'm a Shelby Boss guy, I love the Mustangs, I love Trans-Am racing, but Can-Am was just all-out racing. I mean, no rules. You know, it was so... And they had four, four tires and enclosed body work and two seats, and that was uh, that was pretty much it. You know, uh, they, they, tried, they tried to keep it that way. Now, Jim Hall, of course, called their bluff. And uh, the race that I did uh, the book on uh, was the 1970 Road Atlanta Can-Am, and it was one of the few times that Jim Hall's sucker car, the 2J, appeared. And, uh, and, and you know, when, when he, he said, look, I designed that car with the Can-Am rules and the spirit of the Can-Am in mind, that there were no rules. So <laughs> how, how can you ban me if there are no rules? Well... It, you know, it, it's a long story, but I will tell you this, that the, the, the car originally had been designed at uh, General Motors R&D, and when they designed it, the fans were vertical, so the air exited going up. Well, when Jim redid the car uh, down at his shop in, uh, in Midland, uh, he made it horizontal so that the fans exited out the back, and you know, that was the very first race at Road Atlanta, so the track was green. There was a lot of debris on the track, of course, that red Georgia clay. And, man, I'll tell you, when that car picked up some some dirt and stuff on the on the edge of the track, it blew it right out the back into the face of, of the drivers, and it was not fun. <laughs> As a vacuum cleaner. Well, it was. No, it was a vacuum cleaner for sure. And... Uh, and and it, it you could really argue that it it was it was potentially a very serious safety problem. Now, with that in mind, uh, yeah, it was innovative though. I mean, it was uh, uh, you know, I mean, it was like you know, Jim always was. You know, I mean, he was always thinking outside the box, and uh, it it wasn't technically fair to to just ban it the way they did, but they did. And, and that's it. There, it also had to do with the fact that it had movable aerodynamic devices on it. The skirts moved, and they were a function of the aerodynamic uh, suction of the car and blah, blah, and all of that. So that was their rationale. But, yeah, the, the Can-Am was just amazing. And, and the interesting thing that, you know, people talk about the Can-Am being killed because of Mark Donahue in the 917-30, but... You know, they kind of forget that, you know, McLaren dominated that series unbelievably for, you know, a number of years. In fact, going up until that Can-Am race in 1970, McLaren had won something like 26 out of 29 of the prior races and all of the races in the year before. And, um, you know, so it, it it was not exactly competitive. 
you know, the, it was really a matter of who was going to come in third and fourth and, you know, and down the road, not first or second, because that was always going to be Bruce or Denny. But, uh, uh, but just the sheer horsepower and the sound and the speed was just phenomenal. And, and then Road Atlanta, you know, at the time, you know, if you've been to Sebring back in the day, you can only appreciate what Road Atlanta meant to us Southerners, you know, to go to a place that actually had nice bathrooms and, uh, and it was cleaning. <laughs> well, wait a minute. It had hill. I got my racing license at Road Atlanta in 1990, yeah. so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Road Atlanta. Yeah, and uh, so we, I mean, we loved Road Atlanta. What a beautiful track that is, and uh, I had a great time. But, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it was fun to, to do the Can-Am. I mean, that whole era, era was just, you know, very magical, and the drivers were were wonderful uh, you know all of them were just approachable you could you know they'd be sitting there in the pits and you could just walk up and sit next to them and talk and they you know they were great uh, now speaking of which did you get a chance to talk to jim chaparral and i mean uh jim hall jim and hall. and vic elfer drove that car right yeah yeah well i i interviewed both of them for the book uh, okay i said it in the day i you know, I, I was like 19, 20 years old, you know, and these guys were my, were idols. They were gods to me. So, and, and Dan Gurney, you know, was my hero, but I, I, I just couldn't walk up to him and, and introduce myself and talk to him. I kind of regret that, but, uh, you know, but later on when I did the books, yes, I, uh, I called him up and, uh, we, I tape recorded the interviews. I've got, oh, hundreds of, of tapes of, uh, of my interviews with Jim Hall and, Vic Elford and I actually, uh, I got to be fairly friendly with, uh, because uh, later uh, in the uh, in the 2000s, I helped Dr. Fred Simeon start his museum in Philadelphia. And uh, Vic came to the museum several times uh, to do uh, presentations uh, on Porsche and stuff. Uh, the museum has the hippie 917 Porsche that raced at uh, Le Mans in 1970. And so, uh, uh, you know, Vic uh, would come and talk about his days racing Porsche and especially the 917 because, uh, you know, he and I, I would have to say, you know, he's probably the most noted, uh, you know, of course, Brian Redmond definitely and, uh, and Pedro and uh, Seppi Siffert. But, uh, you know, Vic uh, was always acknowledged, especially because he drove it that year in 1969 when very few other drivers would get into that car. It was so diabolical. But he said his years of rallying and driving rally cars made it so he didn't. it didn't bother him that much. He was used to a car being totally out of control, and, and that's what <laughs> 917 was. Uh, so he, uh, you know, he said the 917 didn't bother him. What he wanted was a car that was faster than anybody else's. And that's what he got with the 917. Well, he was on our show. We had him back many years ago, and I wish I, yeah. I regret that he's gone, and he wish he was here because yeah. I'd love to get him on again. But he said, to you know, kind of like his claim to fame is, he tamed the 917. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, because I had Brian Redman on, and Brian Redman said the same thing. He says he took that car out for a drive, and the back end of the thing wanted to come off the uh, air. And so in 69, he wouldn't drive it. He went back to either 910 or 908. Or 908, yeah. Yeah, and and, and Vic was the only one that would drove it. And then, of course, by 70, you know, it got pretty refined. 
Yeah, and they uh, have to and, figure it out, especially right. you know with a short tail. You know they figured that out with the. Uh, in a wire and uh, John Horseman. Yeah. All right. So we got a few minutes left here. So let's talk a little bit about the Simeon um, yeah. Uh, yeah. thing. And then you know what we're going to have to do, Harry? We're going to have to bring you on again. Just one too quick. And I can see, well, th- th- listen, you talked to Sebring and Daytona, which I've been going to since the 70s and Road to Atlanta. So those are my really my favorite tracks on the East yeah. Coast. I'm from California, so it's Sonoma and Laguna, but I want to talk a lot more about that stuff, and because I went to a lot of the races, and you were there, so we got some common th- common commonality there. Also, did you work with uh, uh, Ken Breslauer when, at all? Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay, we got some Breslauer stories, too, then. Okay, yeah. so let's just talk a little bit about the Simeon real quick for the next couple of minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, was, I was very lucky. I, I had an advertising agency in Philadelphia, and I had downsized in the early 2000s, and uh, uh, we were moving into the city. We were going to move into Center City after our kids left, and Fred uh, Simeon at that time, I had known him for a number of years and helped him with a couple of things, and uh, he said, well, look, I bought this building. Uh, I'm going to uh, put my museum in there, and I've got some office space. Why don't you you know, move your office in here, and you can help me, you know, and because uh, be, I'm going to need brochures and stuff like that. And so I, I went in there. I was actually in there a year before the uh, museum even opened and got to see it as they were building it uh, and have photos of all of that stuff, which is really, really interesting. But uh, I got to know Fred, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, pretty well. And, uh, I mean, I've, you know, there are other people, of course, you know, that are, that are much, much closer uh, to him than I was. But um, uh, we... Uh, 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 you know, I, I had my uh, uh, my office there, and uh, uh, you know, it was it was amazing that you know a, a lot of guys you know have car collections, but Fred assembled this collection with with a singleness of vision. He wanted these cars to represent the spirit of competition, how competition improves the breed, and in the same way that Darwinism affects evolution, that. You know, the survival of the fittest is one thing is found to work better than something else than it's adopted by the others. And uh, so the cars in his collection are all racing sports cars, cars with headlights and uh, fenders that conceivably could have been driven on the road as endurance cars were at the time. And as you go through the collection, which starts in the early 1900s, you can see how competition has evolved in the cars. The cars, instead of having narrow, tall tires, they get lower and wider. The aerodynamics change. The engine goes from being in the front to being in the back. All of this, the brakes go from being cable-operated to hydraulic. In fact, he has the car that was the very first automobile ever to have hydraulic brakes, which was the Duesenberg, which was one of the team cars of the 1921 French Grand Prix. He happens to have the only surviving, or at least as far as we know right now, the only surviving example of the uh, of the Duesenberg team cars. So um, it uh, uh, you know it's it's a remarkable collection by a remarkable man. You know he was a neurosurgeon, but he was not. He did not start out as a rich man. He grew up in the Kensington uh, district of Philadelphia, which is a very poor area. His father was a doctor, but he was a family doctor. Didn't have a lot of money, but loved automobiles. Harry, hold hold that thought, because we're up against the clock here. I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Real quick, shout out how people can find out more about you real quick and on your Facebook page. Well, uh, go to Glory Days of Racing Facebook group, 
And, uh, you know, you can look through it there and, uh, and uh, put in a comment and uh, we'll select you to join it. And then also I have a website, www.glorydaysofracing.com with uh, information and photos. Super. Harry, we will have you back. I'm sorry I, had to, I didn't mean to run it short, but you know how it is. The, the, we just got the uh, checker flag. Harry, yep. thank you very much. I want to thank a very, very special guest, Harry Hurst. And uh, be sure to check out this Facebook page, Glory Days of Racing. In the meantime, I want to tell all my listeners, don't forget, every Tuesday night between 7 and 8 p.m. here at the Ted Talk Radio. See you some of the car shows. Meet them this weekend. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.